Hi, and welcome to the, our podcast for section 63 of the Doctrine and Covenants. I am David J. Ridges, the author of the study guide series on the Doctrine and Covenants called Your Study of the Doctrine and Covenants Made Easier. By way of background for section 63, uh, the heading to your scriptures, if you have a set of Doctrine and Covenants and other scriptures prior to 2013, it says that the date for the giving of section 63 was somewhere, quote, late in August 1831. However, because of research for the Joe Smith Papers project, the date is now known to be August 30th, 1831. It was given through Joseph Smith in Kirtland, Ohio, and the prophet had now arrived from back in Kirtland, having traveled the 900 miles from Jackson County, Missouri, in just 19 days. In our last podcast, dealing with sections 60 to 62, we learned that there were many troubles in traveling on the Missouri and Mississippi River. And at this time, Joseph and others are back in Kirtland safe and sound. Now, although many members of the church in Kirtland area were faithful and deeply committed to the Lord and his newly restored church, some were not. They claimed to be members and wanted the blessings of the gospel, but were not seeking the commandments, not keeping, not seeking to keep the commandments. In fact, while the prophet was gone to Missouri, many in Kirtland had grumbled and some had apostatized. Some apparently wanted more obvious evidence from God that this was his church. In fact, while the prophet was gone to Missouri, many in Kirtland had grumbled and some had apostatized. Some apparently wanted more obvious evidence from God that this was his church. Lustful thinking and sexual immorality also seemed to have become a real problem among some of the members in Kirtland at that time. These conditions among the members in Ohio seemed to make up the background and setting for verses 1 through 21 in section 63 here. The wicked and rebellious in the Kirtland area will receive a severe chastisement from the Savior in verses 1 through 21. Then let's go with a little more background for some of the rest of this section. Uh, beginning with verse 22, the Lord gives these, gives these members specific instructions concerning Kirtland as well as Zion. That's in Jackson County, Missouri. He will give much prophecy and will point their minds forward to the time of his second coming and the millennium. As he does to us today, he gives encouragement to the righteous. Uh, for instance, in verses 47 to 49, and warns all of the members not to be among the foolish virgins 
so for that part of this section, it'll help to be a little familiar with the parable of the ten virgins given in Matthew. Section 63 finishes up with specific instructions to Sidney Rigdon about his written description of Zion. He was asked by the Lord through Joseph Smith to write a description of Zion down in Missouri. And we'll see that his first written description was not accepted by the Lord. He will be asked to do it again, and we will see that his second edition of that description will be accepted. Also, near the end of this section, we'll see a clear reminder of the importance of missionary work, the seriousness of covenants, the necessity of respect for the name of God, and the need for patience with themselves as the saints strive to overcome sins and shortcomings. Now, there are many approaches to studying section 63. It is filled with all kinds of very excellent material for us to know about and also to internalize. And sometimes it lends us, uh, such sections as this lend themselves nicely to stepping back, kind of drop back a few steps and look at this section from an overall perspective. If you do, you'll see an interesting pattern in how the Savior is dealing with the problems among the saints in Kirtland. By the way, he deals the same way with us. He is, in effect, our, he is our elder brother, and he is, in effect, in a parenting role to help us learn and come along as his children, as King Benjamin calls us, the children of Christ. And so we see some parenting patterns in this section. Uh, for instance, we'll just take a minute on this because we need to get to the other material in this section. But if you step back and look at this section, you see a pattern for parenting. First, he explains the problems. It helps if you're disciplining your children to explain to them what they're in trouble for, of course. So, first he explains the problems. That's in verses 1 through 21. Second, he gives them specific things to do and gives counsel that will help them repent and overcome the problems. We'll see that in verses 22 to 46 and also in verses 55 to 66. In other words, he has already told them you're in trouble, so to speak, and then he tells them how they can get out of this trouble that they're in and make pro progress towards their eternal salvation. And third, he gives them something to look forward to by pointing their minds ahead to the blessings and rewards of obedience and living the gospel. You'll see this in verses 47 to 54. So, uh, we're the children. He is the parent, so to speak. And this pattern of ex telling them they're in trouble and this is why, and then 
uh, here's how you can get out of trouble, and then here are some things to look forward to. To me, that's a really wonderful uh, pattern for parenting. Well, let's go ahead and go through several doctrines and patterns and so forth in this wonderful section. First off, in verse 1, of course, he says, Hearken, O ye people. Hearken means to listen and obey. That's crucial for our salvation eventually, entering into exaltation. Now, verse 1 has a pretty sharp uh, comment about their present behavior. And this, there are many righteous people in Kirtland, but there are quite a few that are out of line. And so look what he says in the middle of verse 1. He says, Hearken, all you people, and open your heart, and give ear from afar, and listen, you that call yourselves the people of the Lord. Ouch. In other words, they are calling themselves the saints, but they are not acting like saints. So you that call yourselves the people of the Lord. This is a very strong statement from a loving God. Such statements are often needed to get the attention of people who think they are doing rather well, but in reality they are blinded to the dangers of the direction their life is taking. Let's go to verse 2. Yea, verily I say, hear the word of him, that's Christ, of course, whose anger is kindled against the wicked and rebellious, Verse 3, who willeth to take even them whom he will take, and preserveth life, in, and preserveth in life them whom he will preserve. In other words, the Lord can remove us from the earth or leave us here. He knows what he's doing. And that's a pretty strong statement, surely, to get their attention as they hear this revelation. And then verse 4, who buildeth up at his own will and pleasure, and destroyeth when he pleaseth, and is able to cast the soul down to hell. Once again, these are attention-getter verses. Verse 5, I, the Lord, utter my voice, and it shall be obeyed. Verse 6, verily I say, let the wicked take heed. So we have to decide, they have to decide whether they're among the wicked or among the righteous here. Verse 6, let the wicked take heed and let the rebellious fear and tremble and let the unbelieving hold their lips. By the way, there's a lot of implication in that statement uh, because a lot of the saints, so-called saints in Kirtland area, have, have been murmuring and complaining. So the Lord says, let the unbelieving hold their lips. That would include that they should stop murmuring and complaining. For the day of wrath, wrath in this case means punishments, shall come upon them as a whirlwind. In other words, suddenly when they don't expect it. And all flesh shall know that I am God. Now, in verses 7 to 12, Next, we find a number of people demanding evidence as proof of God's existence or obvious evidence. In other words, signs 
they're demanding signs. And these kinds of signs that they're demanding are inappropriate and in fact can be dangerous. They are a sign of rebellion and arrogance on the part of those who demand them. Uh, for instance, the kinds of signs that are talked about here are the kinds of things when people say, for instance, bless me first and then I'll pay tithing. Bless me first and then I will donate money to buy land in Zion down in Missouri, as they had been asked to do. Uh, in other words, demanding evidence from God first before obedience hardens and damages the soul. On the other hand, faith softens the soul and makes us moldable and pliable in the hands of the master. So going on with this warning um, and uh, scolding about seeking signs for those to whom this applies verse 7 he that seeketh signs shall see signs but not unto their salvation in other words those who arrogantly demand proof of potential blessings before they will obey god will ultimately see plenty of evidence that god exists but it'll not be the kind of evidence they really were thinking about when he actually punishes them, they will know that he is God. Now, uh, verse 8, he kind of summarizes things. There are those among you who seek signs. Then verse 9, again, he is the master teacher teaching these saints and us. Verse 9, but behold, faith cometh not by signs, but signs follow those that believe. Verse 10, yea, signs come by faith, not by the will of men, nor as they please, but by the will of God. So, a warning about signs. Now, uh, we saw some uh, people in the Book of Mormon, they were called Antichrists, who sought signs. We don't have time today to go ahead and refer to the Book of Mormon, but perhaps you remember in Jacob of the Book of Mormon, chapter 7, uh, there was an antichrist named Sherem, and he, in Jacob 7, verse 13, said, show me a sign. We also ran into Korahor in Alma chapter 30, and in verse 43, Korahor says to Alma, show me a sign. These are arrogant uh, and completely out of line people who are demanding a sign from God. Well, they both got signs and they were not the kind that they really wanted. But the warning here in section 63 is clear. And so let's summarize in verse 12. Wherefore, I, the Lord, am not pleased with those among you have sought a, who have sought after signs and wonders for faith, and not for the good of men unto my glory. Well, let's go to verses 14 to 16, uh, where the Lord will uh, address another problem in Kirtland among the saints in the Kirtland area. We already mentioned it. 
beginning of this podcast, there was much of lustful thinking and sexual immorality. And so in verses 14 to 16, the Lord, as a master teacher, teaches why it is so spiritually damaging and warns that it is spiritually damaging to entertain, meaning to keep them in your mind. Everybody has improper thoughts. They come into the mind from all directions, especially in our day of uh, so much media bombarding us constantly. But if we cast them out immediately, we're okay. But if we entertain them, we're in deep trouble. So next in verses 14 to 16, the Lord addresses the spiritual, spiritually damaging effects of lustful thinking and sexual immorality, which had become a real serious problem there in the Kirtland area. In verse 14, he says, there were among you adulterers and adulteresses, some of whom have turned away from you and others remain with you. In other words, some have apostatized already, but there are still some members among you who have not corrected this problem within themselves. But, end of verse 14, hereafter shall be revealed. In other words, that kind of wickedness and intentionally allowing lustful thoughts and involving oneself in sexual immorality, that will eventually come to the surface and you will know you've been caught and others around you will know also that it doesn't pay. So verse 15, uh, by the way, as a seminary institute teacher for my career, I occasionally had students who ask who had actually heard that you can't be forgiven of adultery. Well, here's the answer in verse 15. Let such beware and repent speedily. So can you be forgiven of adultery completely so you can still continue forward into exaltation? The answer is yes, you can be forgiven completely. Verse 15, let such beware and repent speedily. I love how the Doctrine and Covenants just cuts through all the uh, other things and gives us the clear answer. Well, uh, one of my students in seminary many years ago asked just straight out, I loved how she put it, it was just straightforward. She said, Brother Ridges, uh, why should we not commit fornication? Why should we not have sexual experiences before we're married? Because we do have the medical technology to prevent conception. Well, you can guess that at that point, the whole class was at full attention. Well, verse 16 has the answer that I gave her and to the whole class. It's a very clear statement of why sexual intimacy is so dangerous. Yes, we have the medical technology to uh, prevent conception, but here's the big issue, verse 16. Verily I say unto you, as I've said before, I would have been in section 42, verse 23, he that looketh on a woman to lust after her, or if any shall commit adultery in their hearts, in other words, entertain 
lustful thinking, they shall not have the spirit. There's the key. The spirit, if you intentionally, continually indulge in that, I think it takes a while to get the spirit to uh, depart away from you, the Holy Ghost. But the ultimate consequence is they shall not have the spirit. And then you know, of course, that you're sitting ducks for Satan and all of his other wiles. Now in verse 17, next, we see a list of several sins that when we don't repent of them, will lead the sinner to being turned over to Satan to pay for his or her own sins. And end, ultimately, this is a doctrine, ultimately, if they don't repent, if they stay in that mode in their lives, they will end up in the telestial kingdom on the day of final judgment. Now, let's just point some of these out. We've got to watch the time here. In verse 17, uh, if you're underlining or marking scriptures, you might just underline liars and whosoever loveth and makes a lie. That could be interpreted several ways, I suppose, including somebody that's involved in sexual immorality and lies to try and cover up for it. Another terrible Style, lifestyle is the whoremonger, which is in verse 17 near the middle. Whoremongers are people whose lives are centered on sexual immorality. You've probably met a few. And the sorcerer, that would include witchcraft and devil worship and the occult. All of these shall have their part in that lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. Now, there's really not a lake of molten sulfur that the wicked are thrown into. By the way, you'd be a uh, resurrected being or a spirit at, at that time, and later a resurrected being even at the end of the millennium. Uh, if you were a spirit, that wouldn't hurt at all. So this is all... Uh, symbolism they they will be have their part in that lake which burneth with fire and brimstone in other words they'll be punished for their own sins the atonement will not be able to work for them except for the fact that they will be resurrected that's a huge component of what the atonement does for us but they will be punished for their own sins and that does not sound fun when it's compared to a lake of fire and brimstone or molten sulfur. And then at the end of verse 17, uh, we see the phrase, which is the second death? In this case, second death is defined as being cut off from living in the direct presence of God. Those who attain celestial glory, as you know, will live in the direct presence of God, Heavenly Father and Jesus. But, uh, those who commit these sins that were mentioned here, and I, there are a lot of other ones too, will not be able to live eternally in the direct presence of God and Christ. Verse 18 gives us a little more doctrine on this. Verily I say that they shall not have part in the first resurrection. Now perhaps you remember that those who are going to end up in celestial glory will not be resurrected until the end of the millennium. We would look at Doctrine and Covenants section 88, verses 100 to 
101. Doctrine and Covenants 88, verses 100 to 101. So, they have to wait the thousand years till the millennium is over before they get resurrected. So, verse 18, as it started out, they shall not have part in the first resurrection. That's doctrine. Now, verse 19 says, ye are not justified, second line. Uh, justified means worthy to enter celestial glory. Doctrinally, the word justified means lined up and made worthy and fit to be in the presence of God comfortably. And that comes through the atonement of Christ. It comes by following the promptings of the Holy Ghost and getting your life in order. The Holy Ghost will help you to eventually be justified or be made worthy with the help of the atonement to enter in to celestial glory and live with Heavenly Father and Jesus. Now, uh, verse 20 is a very encouraging verse to these saints in Kirtland and to all of us that are trying to do our best to be worthy and stay on the covenant path. Verse 20, he that endureth in faith, this implies that this is a process, he that endureth in faith and doeth my will, the same shall overcome. I love that. That means we will have the strength and power ultimately to overcome sin and evil with the help of Christ and his atonement. And it goes on to say, and shall receive an inheritance on the earth when the day of transfiguration will shall come. Well, uh, what is an inheritance upon the earth? Well, we are told in section 130 that the those who attain the celestial kingdom, that this earth will become the celestial kingdom. And it will actually be moved from where it is now in space back up into the presence of God, wherever that is. I like to call it the mega quadrant of space, the celestial mega quadrant of space. And I have no idea if that's right or not, but uh, we will receive an inheritance upon this earth because it will be our celestial kingdom and we will live on it eternally and it will be moved in the presence of God. Now verse 21 says, when the earth shall be transfigured, even according to the pattern which was shown unto my apostles, that was in Matthew 17 verses 1 to 3 and verse 9, Matthew 17, 1 to 3 and verse 9, that's the Mount of Transfiguration. And uh, as we look back at verses 20 to 21, uh, we can think of two transfigurations. One will be when it is, when this earth is transfigured from a celestial planet or globe, which it is now, to a terrestrial globe. That'll be at the beginning of the millennium when the earth will be transformed and receive its paradisiacal glory. It'll be like the Garden of Eden was, and this will uh, prevail during the entire millennium. That's a thousand years. So that's one of the transfigurations. 
The second transfiguration we already discussed, it's when it will be changed into a celestial planet, that's Doctrine and Covenants, section 130, verse 9, and moved back into the presence of the Father where it was first created. Uh, the Prophet Joseph Smith talked about this in Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 181, where the earth is moved back into the presence of God and those who are on the earth who are worthy of a celestial glory, it will be their celestial kingdom. Well, we better keep moving. Let's go clear over to verse 32 here, because in this section, have, have you noticed that one of the patterns that the Savior uses with us and is using with these uh, members of the church back in the Kirtland and Missouri, early parts of church history there, he gives us perspective and lets us look forward to other things, gives us the big picture. The big picture helps us to live in the daily details of normal life. And also the big picture gives us perspective, which allows us to live righteously with quite a lot of understanding as to why we ought to live righteously. So, uh, there are some interesting things, starting with verse 32. First of all, have you noticed that the earth is getting more and more wicked? The world, meaning the people on the earth, that the world is getting, uh, the people are getting more and more wicked. Verse 32 helps us understand maybe why. Verse 32, I, the Lord, am angry with the wicked. I am holding my spirit from the inhabitants of the earth. Clear back here. At this time, the earth's history, the Lord is holding his spirit from the inhabitants of the earth because of their wickedness. Remember, wickedness drives the spirit away. Another one of the signs of the times is verse 33, I have sworn in my wrath and decreed wars, so there, there will be an increased number of wars. And the wicked shall slay the wicked, and fear shall come upon every man. Now, if we just read verses 32 and 33 like we just did, and left out verse 34, it would be very discouraging for us. Let's read verse 34 which has some very important doctrine for us. And the saints also shall hardly escape. Nevertheless, I, the Lord, am with them. That's very encouraging. He is with us individually. We can be among all of this trouble uh, and still live relatively peaceful lives. We can have the Holy Ghost with us constantly as we hear when the sacrament prayers are given. So, verse 34, and the saints also shall hardly escape. Nevertheless, I, the Lord, am with them. And then he goes way into the future and will come down in heaven from the presence of my father and consume the wicked with unquenchable fire. That's a reference to the second coming. So verse 34 says he will be with us now. And ultimately, we know that the wicked will 
be caught up with and destroyed. And if we live righteously, we will also be caught up either if we're alive during the millennium, we'll be caught up to meet the Savior when he comes, or if we've already died and we're righteous, we will be resurrected and caught up from our graves to meet the coming Christ. Now, the prophet Joseph Smith had something to say about the verse 34, where it says, the saints also shall hardly escape. Uh, I'm going to read just a short excerpt from him. Quote from the prophet Joseph Smith. It is a false idea that the saints will escape all the judgments whilst the wicked suffer, for all flesh is subject to suffer, and the righteous shall hardly escape. Still, and the righteous shall hardly escape. So he's quoting this verse that we just read. Still, many of the saints will escape, for the just shall live by faith. Yet many of the righteous shall fall a prey to disease, to pestilence, etc., by reason of the weakness of the flesh, and yet be saved in the kingdom of God. So that it is an unhallowed principle to say that such and such have transgressed because they have been preyed upon by disease or death, for all flesh is subject to death. And the Savior has said, Judge not, lest ye be judged. That would be from the History of the Church, Volume 4, page 11. So the message and counsel of our current prophet and other church leaders must also be included with verses 32 to 34 that we just read. If we are to avoid gloom and despair or pessimism in our own lives, one of the strongest messages from our church leaders is for us to avoid getting caught up in gloom and doom. Rather, we are reminded that this is a wonderful time to be alive. Well, the Lord gives quite a few instructions now to the saints in Kirtland and uh, all of the things involved in preparing to travel on down to the land of Jackson County in Missouri. He will also give instructions in the next several verses to uh, several individuals. And we're going to just uh, pick it up now with verses 49 to 54, where the Lord points the minds and the hearts of these saints to the future and to the second coming and the millennium and gives them perspective as to the blessings that will someday come to the righteous. By the way, that's one of the strongest helps to us to have confidence in the future and know that regardless of what happens to us, even here in this life, if we strive to stay on the covenant path, we will have a glorious future. And that gives a lot of strength for the present, even though the present can sometimes be quite difficult. Now, verse 49, we're given some doctrine. 
Yea, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. That means those who die righteous. And remember that the Savior says, I will help you after all that you can do. So 49, yea, and blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. In other words, who die in righteously, having strived throughout their life to live the gospel, or who having repented strongly, end up on the covenant path and stay there before they die. From henceforth, when the Lord shall come, that's a reference to the second coming, and old things shall pass away, and all things shall become new. They shall rise from the dead, and shall not die after. In other words, once you're resurrected, you're alive forever, and shall receive an inheritance before the Lord in the holy city. Now, holy city can refer to many things in this context, no doubt. It re means that we will be in the celestial kingdom. Verse 50, he that liveth when the Lord shall come. Okay, if you're still alive when the Lord's second coming actually gets here and hath kept the faith, in other words, you've tried to live righteously, blessed is he. Nevertheless, it is appointed unto him it is appointed to him to die at the age of man. Okay, now we're talking about the millennium. Verse 50. People who are alive, members of the church, for instance, who are alive when the Savior comes. Uh, how long will they live during the millennium? It's a question a lot of my students have asked me over the years. Well, it is appointed to him to die at the age of man. Well, that doesn't help any, does it? The age of man, goodness, I know somebody that's 107. I know a lot of people who died at age 60 or 70 or 80. So the question is, how old, old is the age of man? At the end of verse 50, the answer is simple. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 20, that's Isaiah 65 and 20 says, People will live to be a hundred years old during the millennium. And Joseph Fielding Smith also said that men shall die when they are 100 years of age. That's in a quote from uh, President Joseph Fielding Smith when he was Elder Joseph Fielding Smith. The book is Way to Perfection, pages 298 to 299, and also on page 311. Another beautiful thing about the millennium, if we happen to be here during the millennium, verse 51, children shall grow up until they become old. Old men shall die, but they shall not sleep in the dust. Now remember how old they live, men and women, during the millennium? They live to be a hundred. Now, when they actually die, it says in 51, but they shall not sleep in the dust. In other words, they're not going to be buried and be in the grave for a while. But they shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye. In other words, they will be resurrected immediately. That's an exciting thing to think of. Well, uh, I'm looking at the clock. We've got to finish up now. 
let's talk about uh, the foolish virgins in the parable of the uh, ten virgins. That's found in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13. Uh, the Savior is using this parable now, uh, trying to help the members of the church in Kirtland area especially, and all of us, to be wise and not foolish when it comes to being prepared to meet the Savior. Verse 54, and, and until that hour, up until the second coming, in other words, there will be foolish virgins among the wise. And at that hour cometh an entire separation of the righteous and the wicked. In other words, when the Savior comes, there will be an entire separation of the righteous from the wicked. And we know from other scriptures that that means that those who are living a terrestrial style life and those who are striving to live celestial lifestyle, meaning striving to stay on the covenant path, they were the ones who will be spared when Christ comes. The, those who are living a celestial lifestyle and, of course, an outer darkness type of lifestyle, severe evil, they will be destroyed. And last part of 54, in that day will I send mine angels to pluck out the wicked and cast them into unquenchable fire. In other words, the wicked will be destroyed. At the second coming, by the way, uh, the righteous will be lifted up off the earth first, and then the wicked will be destroyed. Now, a few messages to other members of the church at that time, and we'll finish up by moving over to verse 61. This is a caution how people take the name of the Lord in vain. I worked on construction crews. I worked on the railroad. I've worked on welding crews as a welder. I've worked as a lumberjack. The language that is used with respect to the taking the name of the Lord in vain was very offensive to my ears, and it still is. Now we have media where the name of God is taken in vain constantly and nobody even notices it hardly except a lot of us. So verse 61, wherefore let all men beware how they take my name in their lips. Verse 62, for behold verily I say that many there be who are under this condemnation who use the name of the Lord and use it in vain. Now, having not authority, that leads to another uh, thought that it's not just swearing or using the name of deity uh, inappropriately. It's uh, an elder, James E. Talmadge said this, it is, we may take the name of God in vain by profane speech, but we take the name of God in vain when we are not true to our covenants and the oaths and promises that we have made, especially at baptism and in the temple. So we'll now finish with verse 64. Remember that which cometh from above is sacred. 
and must be spoken with care and by constraint of the spirit. And in this there is no condemnation, and ye receive the spirit through prayer now. Perhaps you've been in a group where someone has spoken irreverently about the temple or about the Savior or made jokes about God. Uh, that to me would be in violation of verse 64, that that which cometh from above is sacred and must be spoken with care and by constraint of the Spirit. So we always exercise reverence and humility when we're talking about the Lord, Heavenly Father, and sacred things. I leave this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.